Broadcasting from a radioactive bunker deep inside the bracket compound, this is Show Spoilers Episode 3. This is Part 2 of our Game of Thrones Season 7 recap. We thought that we could do a recap in one episode, but just like you, we love talking about Game of Thrones, and there was no way that we were going to fit everything into one show. So you heard our top moments from Season 7. Now we're going to get into the theories. We're going to get into tweets, emails, Facebook messages. As always, we'd love for you to follow us and join the conversation on social media. The best place to reach us is on Twitter, at all the spoilers. And of course, you can email us at theshowspoilers at gmail.com. Don't forget the the in the front of that. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, wherever fine podcasts are sold or given away for free. If you want to stream any of the episodes from your PC or on the go, if you don't have an app, you can, of course, go to acast.com slash show spoilers. But again, we would love for you to subscribe. And if you could, please rate us five stars on iTunes if you think we deserve it. It helps us a lot, helps us climb the rankings, and helps other listeners discover our podcast. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hey, Raj. Hey, Ra. Hey, this is me. It's Roger. <laughs> Very nice to meet you. We have, we, we have spent more time recording. These this season recap that I think the double D's did uh, in in writing the season. We are our talkers, and there's so much great information that we received. So uh, thank you so much. Now we're really gonna uh, turn the tables and let you tell us what you wanted to talk about. We've got some great Twitter messages. We got some great emails, and we've got one big giant green site at the end of the episode where one of our fans, Gillian, will possibly tell us uh, might spoil. Uh, next season for us so that's what we've got in store for today for tonight or whenever you're listening to this podcast sounds good well, let's get into our first tweet from dan dan and Shetta, he's at glory dan united his question is thoughts on sansa and john reunion with her newly established stronghold at winterfell and him being a targ with danny does sansa hand him back winterfell at this point, the thing is, again, and I'm just going to say it uh, say it again, there's only six episodes left, right? There's only so much we can do. I don't think there's a lot of time for new conflicts. We have so many conflicts to tie up already. Again, how much time are they going to spend on the Night King and, and the army of the dead? And how much time are we going to spend on the Iron Throne as in Cersei versus Daenerys and John, who has bent the knee? I don't think that we're going to have time for a lot of conflict at Winterfell. And at this point, I'm foreseeing a Daenerys and Jon partnership here, them ruling together. I think Winterfell will be Sansa's. I think that's going to be left with her. I would have told you before that the foreshadowing has been Sansa wanting to be the Lady of Winterfell. Arya has been struggling with that and talking to her before the whole Littlefinger reveal I just don't think that's going to be an issue. There's just not time for any fighting over Winterfell at this point. One of our other followers on Twitter, at Gillian Gemma, wrote in, how awkward that reunion at Winterfell is going to be when John says, hey, meet my girlfriend Danny," and uh, the rest of them go, uh, uh, John, we've got some bad news, and then Sam and Bran snicker. Um, I, think, I think there's definitely going to be less of a focal point on the fact that they're related and that they just had you know sweet, sweet boat sex probably multiple times. And more going to be on the, well, while you were gone off gallivanting with, you know, a Targaryen queen, I'm here keeping shit, you know, working. But ultimately, they're going to have to band together. They're going to have to figure things out because whether they like it or not, the Night King is coming along, you know, with his entire you know horde of the undead. So they're going to have to figure things out pretty quickly. Yeah, John doesn't have time for that. And it, it, the question of will one of them die, I mean, I know that uh, we'll get into this in future episodes of our show, but will John and Danny rule together? Will Danny die? Will John die? And one of them will rule. My prediction in the future is that John, if he has to say something about Winterfell, will say, hey, Sansa, you're great. You're a great ruler. Here's Winterfell. Okay, I'm going to go fight now. It's, it, I, I think it's going to be Sansa's, and I think it's going to be very diplomatic. There's just no time for a struggle there. So you're absolutely right with that one. Dan also wrote in with a second question. Again, at Glory Dan United, he says, What the fuck happened with Alaria and Tyene? They dead yet? And why aren't the Dornish attacking King's Landing? Where's that army? We thought that we would see them, and this was one of our complaints, or at least something that we brought up last episode, was we didn't get closure on that fact. I'm starting to think this may go the Stannis route. I mean, remember when it was like, is Stannis dead? Is he alive? How are you going to kill off a major character without showing us bloodshed? I personally, back then, and we didn't get to talk about this, but I thought that Brienne didn't kill Stannis because we didn't see it. 
Well, he's dead, and we just never saw the death on screen, right? And so I'm starting to wonder, with with the limited time that we have left, are we just to presume that they showed us the two of them chained up across from each other and dying the slow, painful, torturous death? Is that it? Is that maybe just all we're going to see and we're to presume the rest of it? Well, according to... One of the interviews of one of the magazines, the actress who plays Laurie Sand, Indira Varma, hopefully I'm saying that correctly, she is on record by saying that she will not be coming back to Game of Thrones. She said she received the call that all Game of Thrones actors with ill-fated characters get from showrunners, uh, the Double Ds. She goes on to say that she was expecting it. She says she wasn't heartbroken. As long as I die on screen, and they were like, yeah, but of course I don't die on screen. I stay alive. I'm just not going to reappear. I think it's really clever. So... You know, we've seen, like you said, we've seen the show do this with other characters like Stannis before, but I really liked Alaria. I really liked Tyene. People, I think, were, were hoping for a Tyene and Braun reunion, which, of course, didn't happen. But it was one of the more powerful scenes this season, and you really liked the interaction. It really kind of showed how villainous Cersei can be, and... You don't want your favorite show to suffer from, you know, a villain problem. When Cersei is at her worst, being a villain, she's her best. Does that make sense? Yeah. When she's when she's absolutely a terrible human, you kind of root for it. You're kind of like, fuck yeah, Cersei. Like, I wouldn't do it, but you know, good on you. And so I, you know, I don't think we're going to see Alaria or Tyene, unfortunately, to answer your question, Dan. But I think the more interesting question is, why aren't the Dornish attacking King's Landing? Yeah, and and I agree with you. I mean, just to go back to your point, I am not a Cersei fan, but Lena Headey is an amazing actor, and props to her because she does a great job of making you hate her. And it's the same thing with Jack Gleason playing Joffrey. I absolutely hated these characters, but you have to give them props. And we said it last episode, I'll say it again, these villains as bad guys, they are the best of the best. And when that moment happened between Ilaria and her daughter, it was one of those things where it's like, I hate Cersei, but you have to give her props for that amazing way to make them suffer as her daughter suffered. And, and it really did make a great villain. So fantastic there. As far as Dorne, I, I'm not really sure. And again, I, I haven't finished with the book, so I don't know if there's more to it there. But at this point in the game, again, there's just not that much of the show left. So I don't believe that we'll see anything else from Dorne at this point because there just isn't time for it. But I don't know. Do you have any theories as to why Dorne wouldn't interject? Well, I think there's a couple things here. Euron's destruction of the Greyjoy fleet led to the capture of Alaria and Tyene, right? So... Obviously, the ships that were on en route to bring the Dornish army across no longer exist. So you would have to think that the Dornish army is just still there. Additionally, Alaria overthrew the, the Dornish king and, and took over. Now, we don't really see necessarily how much of the political, you know, how much politics that played, but you have to assume that they were supportive if she promised that, you know, they were going to bring back the Dornish army. So I'll stop there. Any ideas? Yeah, I mean, without her as the leader, I I could definitely see them just kind of waiting for her next move. And obviously, she's a bit tied up at the moment pun intended. She she can't command them any further. She can't give any instruction. So I, I think they're just kind of sitting by the wayside. Yeah, you- this could end up being an advantage for the Daenerys side if the result is that a previously semi-reluctant Dornish army, one that necessarily didn't want to get involved with this new great war, if they're now out for vengeance, now that you know their queen, Alaria, or the person who was in charge, was murdered. However, there's other theories that may explain where the Dornish army is. Perhaps the Dornish army is trying to play nice. I mean, they basically have a hostage situation going on here. Maybe they're thinking, okay, we don't want anything to happen to Ilaria, so we're just going to stay out of this whole thing. Yeah, another theory might be the the Bannermen of Dorne should owe no allegiance to Ilaria or her daughters. If anything, the entire region should have been in a succession crisis the moment a bunch of bastards killed their lord paramount and his child so potentially the dornish army could be just you know in a state of crisis that whole area because there's no one in charge 
Right, exactly. I should probably know this, but tell me, whenever Ilaria took over from Doran, who is Oberyn's brother, did she kill him in the show, or did she oh, yeah. just say, I'm taking over? No, she killed him. So, I mean, at this point, obviously, she is in charge, like we said, and so there really isn't another ruler to take over. The Dornish have seen Daenerys suffer losses and don't want to join what is probably going to be a loss they're predicting that there's no point to get involved here so they'd rather just sit it out why why even get involved in the first place yeah i mean it's like america in world war one and two right like we're gonna sit this out until we absolutely have to get get into it so yeah i hope that answers your question uh dan i don't think we're gonna see involvement from Dorne again aside from those theories just with the the timing and and how many episodes we have left so i think it was just a way to kind of explain Dorne away was let you theorize what is happening, but uh, we're done with that storyline. Right. Our next question comes in from Nico Aiello. Uh, he's at Nico Aiello 27. He writes in, we assume Valerian still can kill a White Walker because we saw John do it, but we haven't seen that since then. Just Dragonglass. Your thoughts on this? That's an interesting theory because everything that we've seen in the past, we know that the Dragonglass can kill the Whites. And in episode six, when they're when the whole, you know, fellowship of the uh, bring a white to Cersei, when that happens, he kills a white walker with the Valerian seal and all the whites kind of drop, if I'm not mistaken. That happens. So we did see this. Yeah, that's true. But but I think he's saying that that was still John. So his question is, is this a head fake? Is it Valerian Steel or is it John that has some kind of magical ability? Uh, is it something else that we're not see seeing? Is, is this going to be a twist? Uh, uh, you know. No, I don't think it's going to be a twist. The only uh, the only thing that people have been writing about is the fact that Valerian Steel does not seem to have the same effect on White Walkers that Dragonglass does. For instance, we saw Sam kill a white with Dragonglass and it kind of exploded, right? We saw him stab. We see John kill a White Walker with Valerian Steel and the whites fall down. But we've seen Jon Snow stab a white up against wooden gates in the hard home episode uh, and it continued to move if i'm not mistaken we've seen other moments during the battle in episode six of this season when they're across and he's fighting off whites and he's you know hitting them with with long claw and they're not exploding like a white walker so see so i think valerian steel based on what we've seen valerian steel will kill a white walker but to kill a white you've got to use dragon glass that's what I see. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. I if there is a difference or if, or if it's one of those things that is just, you know, they took place at different seasons and they didn't know. I mean, the the writers are smart. George R. R. Martin is smart and the Double Ds are smart. I'm sure that they have this planned out and what the two have as far as different effects. So, I wouldn't generally say that it's oh, well, they didn't exactly know what they wanted to do with it. I'm sure there's a reason behind it. But you've got me as far as I just have no idea. Honestly. The whites are basically annoying to kill. You know, in the early season when John fought one in uh, Jor Mormont's hut, that white still moved even after you know, John stabbed it uh, multiple times. Now that obviously wasn't with a Valerian steel sword, but it seems as if they need to seriously dismember the white, crush it, just like when the you know the, the giant stomped on it, or burn it. The problem is. They haven't invented a portable fire-making device unless you're using, you know, Beric Dondarrion sword. So it's inconvenient to create flames in the middle of a battle. Of course, they do have the wildfire that we talked about earlier, but they will need to ignite it somehow. My assumption is that right now they're just relying on Danny's dragons against the White Army. Does wildfire and the dragon fire, are we to presume that they're related in some way or they're just both effective against them i mean do you think there's any kind of a connection i, I there? think there's definitely a connection between Dragonfire and wildfire i think wildfire was probably created out of Dragonfire. now again i'm not a book reader and i didn't do any kind of homework on that but right in okay it, it might be but we do know that the white walkers are immune to normal fire because we saw them walk through it in the children of the forest tree the three-eyed raven tree that has a name on it i completely forgot what it is i apologize but so far, the only way we know to kill the White Walkers is Valerian Steel and Dragonglass. We don't know necessarily how White Walkers can be killed other than that. When Daenerys flies in and she explodes all these Whites to, to save the uh, Fellowship, right. are they 
are they uh, knocked out or are they no, I, dead? I we think, don't. I think the we don't whites necessarily... were killed by dragon fire, and, and I think they could possibly be killed by wildfire. We've seen regular fire kill whites, but white walkers cannot be killed by fire. I don't think that the dragon fire can kill a white walker. So is this where the Kyburn connection, Kyburn and Cersei teaming up with John and the crew with their whole truce, is that where Kyburn is going to come into play and create some kind of a wildfire concoction oh, yeah, to kill absolutely. them? Absolutely. I think it's also going to, you know, I think that's also why Gendry is still alive, because he's probably going to be one of the few Smiths in Westeros who can figure out how to forge a weapon out of an existing, you know, Valyrian steel weapon. You know, in the books, his master, Topo Mott, is one of the few Smiths that can do that now. So you, you would have to imagine that Gendry learned from him and, and figured out how to do it. You know, you wonder whether or not his hammer might have some Valerian seal in there as well. I think this is a great reason for why they brought back Gendry. Um, you might see, uh, you might see a Gendry and Kyburn team up montage next season where they're, <laughs> where they're forging, you know, these, uh, the scorpion spears with dragon glass and, you know, all, all we're going to see a, a, a poop and porridge montage only with Valerian seal and dragon glass. And hopefully for the ladies, a shirtless, oh, yeah. shirtless Gendry. Gendry. There's going to be uh John buns. It's going to be great. What about now? Wait a minute. If you have to take a shirtless uh-huh. Kyburn, but you get the shirtless Gendry, is it worth it? Listen, I'll let you in on a little secret. I'm always happy to see a shirtless man. I'm always happy to see one. Oh, there you go. But yeah, no, I, I think I think there's other questions that come up with it. Like when the wall was falling, why the hell were Tormund and Beric and the other wildlings? Why were they still at Eastwatch? Were they supposed to try and stop the army somehow? You know, and if so, why didn't they try to shoot the Night King or other White Walkers with Dragonglass arrowheads? What was the whole purpose of them even staying there? If they know the army is marching, why didn't they just fucking leave? I can only say that it boils down to not a whole lot of time and a whole lot of episodes to go right. into their plan. And that was the last place we saw them. So I think that they just happened to be there. You know, that's the but only thing I there. can think of. They were there. And previous to that, they were down in the Cave of Convenience mining dragonglass. Didn't they take a boat back to the wall? Wouldn't they have taken this dragonglass with them? I don't know. It's interesting because I think it is a subtle nod to the show truly being a melting pot for fantasy genres. When you think of like Valerian Steel and Werewolf, Silver Bullets, you know, they're kind of the same thing or that fire kills witches. I think we're starting to learn what kills it. But it, this truly is becoming kind of like a zombie. You know, if you don't think that this show has zombies, no, it has zombies and we're going to kill it by, you know, traditional fantasy uh, rules. The only thing that I can hope going forward is that we talked about this last episode again. I know we keep hearkening back to it, but in the finale episode, we gave our thoughts as to how things will go forward. And I'm hoping that the show does not continue for another six episodes to be a zombie show. It didn't start that way. It's it's a plot point, and it's an important one. But again, as a whole, this is the Game right. of Thrones. It is not a Westeros for zombies <laughs> show. It's not a John versus zombies show. It's That's the right. Game of Thrones. And so I do not want to see for the next six episodes them fighting zombies. So I really hope there's an early resolution. I hope that in these hour and a half episodes that are rumored, I hope that in one or two, we can resolve that issue and move forward with all of our other plot points. But uh, yeah, let's just hope that uh, this is a nod. And again, this melting point, it's cool. I like the idea of them fighting the whites and and the, the whole Night King thing. And then let's hope that that's not the rest of the series because, again, there's so many unanswered questions. Well, one of the other an- unanswered questions that came in from Facebook, uh, Cynthia Chow wrote in, when did Tyrion start sucking as a tactician and how long can Bronn and Jamie hold their breath while swimming underwater? So, two separate questions. <laughs> Kevin, I'll let you answer the first one. When did Tyrion start sucking as a tactician? Well, I think that Tyrion started sucking as soon as Danny stopped listening to him. I mean, again, no one bats a thousand. No one can get it right all the time. And I feel that Danny has placed the blame on Tyrion for some different decisions that he's made and has kind of lost faith and decided that, okay, I'm just going to do my own thing because I listened to you and this didn't go exactly how I planned it. And I don't necessarily think that Tyrion has turned into a bad tactician. I just think that it feels like Daenerys is doing her own thing, and and that kind of goes back to what we questioned last episode. Why is Tyrion creeping outside their room? I think Tyrion is thinking to himself, I have this 
this queen that I'm trying to get on the throne and I'm trying to make all these decisions and she isn't asking me as the hand of the queen, as her advisor, is this alliance going to be beneficial? She's not asking my opinion anymore. So she stopped listening to him. How can he be productive and how can he be successful if he's not, if his advice isn't even being taken into consideration. Yeah, Tyrion's motives have always driven him away. You know, when things aren't working out for Tyrion, he seems to go away. I don't know which other king he can support as a hand of the king, but I don't think that he was necessarily always a brilliant tactician. He's clever, but think of like outside of holding back Stannis's armies. Really, what other plan has Tyrion accomplished that would have been? That would have been successful. And you even have to think that Tyrion's Tyrion's plan using the wildfire against Stannis may not have even uh, been successful had it not been for Tywin coming in and rescuing at the end. Sure. No, I, I can see that. We haven't seen a whole lot of experience of Tyrion being a, a military strategist. And again, I, I was going to say the same thing with, you know, talking about Tywin or talking about Randall Tarley. Those are military men. Those are the real tacticians. Tyrion hasn't had a whole lot of experience with that. And I, I think that I couldn't have said it better than you did. He's clever. He is, he always is able to come out on top with his cleverness, with his intellect he is smart but he isn't a military yeah. man other than other than blackwater i don't think he has a lot of experience with battle or with with military yeah. that's not his interest and never never was growing up so but again i don't i don't think that he sucks either i think that the point is that he just doesn't have a lot of experience so he may not get it right every time and i think now that daenerys isn't really listening for his advice i just don't think that he's going to have a lot more input. Yeah, and that may cause a, a rift between the two. He's been a schemer, like like yourself. I don't think he's been a tactician because the things that he's done that have been you know major uh, accomplishments, such as trying to create some sort of peace treaty between the the masters, you know that backfired as well. And Danny had to mop up his his trouble there. So I think I don't necessarily know if any of his things have gone well since he's paired up with Danny as as her hand of the queen. So. Anyway, I think that hopefully that answers your question, Cynthia. The next question, though, is how how long can Braun and Jamie hold their breath? Uh, listen, the Mythbusters did a whole thing on this. I think other people have done this as well on YouTube, just YouTube uh, swimming with armor. Obviously, a long time. <laughs> Obviously, they they can hold their breath as long as Kevin Costner did in Waterworld, which before you start writing in and saying, well, he didn't really actually hold his breath. He was, you know. He had gills, so he was breathing underwater. I get it. Understand. It's still a terrible movie. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone's arguing that. And we right. could probably do a whole episode just, just venting about how angry we are about that yeah. whole scene. We already talked about it earlier. It's it's yeah. stupid. It's poor writing. It's cheap. I it, it, It's the weak point for the series, not just the season. They were able to get some emotions out of us. They, they left us on a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? And <clears throat> I could not wait for a week. I was thinking, how are they going to get out of this? How are they going to explain to it? I can't wait to see Jamie's hand is still at the bottom of the river. His armor has been stripped off. How did Bronn swim up with him? I mean, we, we never got it. We never will. It's just a silly, silly scene. So it is what it is. Yeah. The next question comes from, uh, again, Nico Aiello. We have such great fans. He wrote in, uh, does the Golden Company mean we're going to see Young Griff? Now, who is Young Griff and, and what is the Golden Company? We talked about on the last episode, the Golden Company. And, you know, it ends up uh, in our research, we found that the Targaryen bastard Aegor Rivers, decades before the events of Game of Thrones, there was a period called the First Blackfire Rebellion. And the Golden Company was made up of exiles. And by the time of A Dance with Dragons, it's home to a very important exile, Aegon Targaryen, the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Elia Martell, who supposedly had his head bashed in by Gregor Clegane during Robert's Rebellion. If it sounds familiar, if the name Aegon Targaryen sounds familiar, yes, that is Jon Snow's real name. And it is also his brother's name. That's who we're talking about. And that brings up a whole different question. We haven't heard of another Aegon in the show. It's a point in the books, but that's that's a whole different question for another day. 
But long story short, it turns out that uh, King Aerys Hand of the King, his name was John Connington, he had actually rescued Aegon from the mountain when he was a baby and raised him in secret under the name Young Griff. So that is the other Aegon. Again, I don't want to sound like a broken record. We have six episodes left. I don't think we're going to see Young Griff. I don't think we're going to see the other Aegon. My opinion, you tell me what you think, but I'm thinking that the reason why they named John Aegon was to meld different characters, to to take these different elements from the book that they don't have time to put them all on the show for. And I, I think that he's an amalgam of sorts and that John is basically young griff he he does have elements of him and and uh that's all we're gonna see yeah fans of the walking dead will know what i mean when i say the the word uh, kirkman remix right it's when you know robert kirkman takes one of his characters that from the comic books uh, the walking dead and does a remix into another character um so i i do believe this is an amalgam it seems very unlikely that either this Aegon or john cunnington will be introduced to the tv show uh, especially uh, given that a lot of John's story, specifically contracting Grayscale, has been uh, rolled into Jorah Mormont's character. But that is a clue about where the Golden Company storyline is heading. In the books, Aegon and John Cunnington are heading through Westeros to meet with Daenerys and try to marry her. So, you know, I, I do believe that John Cunnington is probably Jorah Mormont, or a lot of his story is rolled in there. And then, of course, they're going to focus on one Aegon, even though there's hundreds of Aegons, apparently. <laughs> Um, but I am interested in seeing this golden compass. Supposedly, it consists of over 10,000 men, uh, several thousand horses, and a number of elephants. And that's the Wonder, golden company, right? You've seen I'm, the golden compass starring Daniel oh, Craig, right? Did I, did I say golden compass? <laughs> yeah. I always do this. They had polar bears, though. The fucking golden compass had polar bears. During and winter, saw, and there was yeah, some action. Yeah. No, I, I, I would like to see the, the Dothraki and the Unsullied uh, take on the golden company. So, anyway. I think that very well could be a big showdown in season eight. And hopefully, again, like I said, hopefully we'll be done with the Night King. I mean, I would love to see a great resolution. I don't want to brush that whole thing aside. But once we're done with that, I want to see a battle for for the throne. I want to see this Game of Thrones continue once the, the Night King and his army is put aside. And wouldn't that be great to see a showdown between these huge armies that Danny has amassed and the Golden Company? Without a doubt. Our next question comes in via Facebook uh, from Paola. She says, Littlefinger deserved a more glorious death. Also, wasn't trial by combat outlawed by Tommen to mess with his mother? Did I miss that when it was brought back? Maybe that's why Littlefinger got the trial he did. What do you guys think is the weakest storyline, or if not the worst wrapping up of a storyline? I hated Tyrell Powerplay, the Marjorie, but that is done. Your thoughts? Yeah, so again... I think I said it last episode, uh, but I really do feel like Littlefinger deserved a better death. No one has played the game from the beginning more than him. Varys is up there, Cersei certainly, but Littlefinger has had his hand in this thing for so long and for even longer than we've seen in the show. And to have him written off like that, and especially without a, an answer as to why, why did Sansa and Arya team up on him? When did they come to this revelation that, that he was working against them and that they were going to team up? It was a bummer to see him go like that because he was such a huge part of this game. As far as the trial by combat, that's the same question that we had. And I, I know that some people have said, well, Tommen outlawed it, but... Again, there's this battle for the throne, and, and there's all these different kings that think that they're the rightful heir to the throne. I'm not sure that Tommen taking over for Joffrey, taking over for Robert, I, I don't necessarily think they give credence to his rule or his laws. So I don't know that that's necessarily an excuse for how they were able to punch Littlefinger like they did, because is anyone listening to Tommen? Yeah, I don't think anyone's listening to Tommen. I think that was something that could have been explored more. And I think it does show, according to, again, one of our listeners, Tiago, who wrote in the very long email, he kind of touches on this. He says, it does show us that the fears, that our fears were right, that they did pretty much undo all of Sansa's character development because the whole situation between the Stark kids and Peter Baelish was a mess of a writing. Now, from an interview that he references that was written uh, on uh, IGN.com on August 30th, we know that there was a deleted scene in which Sansa comes to Bran to ask for help, and only then is she reassured that Littlefinger is playing her again. Now, that is a huge disservice to the character of Sansa. 
How can she be all I know what Baelish is or wants in one episode and then not know what he wants a couple episodes later? Tiago goes on to say that he's glad Littlefinger has died and the show will miss him, the version of him before the season, but how they got rid of him leaves a sour taste. The same can be said about the character of Littlefinger. He was a guy who kickstarted everything and Tiago gets that love, even the corrupted versions of it, can corrupt the mind, but to be manipulated by trying to manipulate too hard was not true to Littlefinger. And I and I have to agree with Tiago on this completely, because Littlefinger almost seemed like he was ahead. And to make a character who started the whole Game of Thrones go out on his knees begging without any kind of scheme, I just think, you know, was was a messy way to wrap up that character. I am com- in complete agreement. With Tiago. Yeah, it's unfortunate for the character because he did some things that were creepy at times. He did some things that were very questionable uh, and immoral, but, you know, he was playing the game. And Aiden Gillen, the actor, is, is one of those commanding actors who steals the scene every time he gets screen time. And no matter what you thought of Littlefinger as a character and, and how, how bad of a guy he was, when he came on the screen... You noticed him, and it's interesting that someone pointed out online that Littlefinger has very little screen time when you compare it to the rest of the characters in the show, but to us, we feel like he's a an extremely main character because the time that he does have is so impressive, and, and, and again, he seals the show, so I just wanted more for the character because he was such an amazing part of the show, and he will definitely be missed. Do you think there's some truth to the fact that, yeah, whilst Littlefinger did set forth the motions for the Game of Thrones in Season 1, carrying up to uh, where we are today, that Tommen also has some blame for it? Had he not outlawed Trial by Combat... None of the uh, none of the Tyrells would have been dead, right? Like the end of like the wildfire at the end of season six is pretty much all Tommen's fault. Yeah, I mean, geez, it's it's so hard to play this game, this blame game, because you know who do you blame? We 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 talked about it before. Do you blame Jamie? Do you blame Bran? Back in the beginning, do you blame Littlefinger? Way back when, you know, it's like there's a different person to blame every season, every couple episodes. There's someone else that you could say, oh, it's all their fault. It's all their fault. I mean, yeah, Tommen made a lot of bad decisions. I believe that he truly thought he was doing the right thing. Tommen was the best Lannister as far as these kings and queens that have been in control. When we talk about Cersei, talk about Joffrey, Tommen thought he was doing the right thing. But he was being manipulated. He was being manipulated by his mother. He was being manipulated by the High Sparrow, who, I mean, I also believe the High Sparrow believed in what he was doing. But again, this king was not in complete control. And yeah, he, he's responsible for a lot of things because of his actions, but they were pure in intention. And, you know, I, I it's unfortunate the way that things ended for him because, you know, I hated Joffrey so much. I hate Cersei so much. I really liked Marjorie and <laughs> Olena. Right. I really just, I wanted that to work I really somehow. Did. I really, I, I'm like you. Yeah. Cause we were just out of Atlanta. But I, again, this yeah. only happened because Tom and outlawed trial by combat because if it was still in place, Cersei would be free, but still functionally powerless or influenceless. Marjorie and the Sparrow would have control of Tom and in the city. We would have seen how far the Sparrow's ambitions would have taken. But no, they decided to take a wild animal back into a corner and hoped she wouldn't lash out. But overall, I think we're all in agreement. Littlefinger deserved better. For as much of a schemer as he is, he really missed all the signs. Uh, he ignored Bran being a seer. He ignored the chaos as a ladder line that Bran mentioned and failed to publicly remind Sansa that she lied too when he murdered Lysa. And even worse, he just blurted out the murder immediately and somehow failed to notice his own Knights of the Vale turning against him. So... You know, I think that's a big disservice because, as as many people have pointed out already, Littlefinger should have read all the signs. Why would you have that chaos as a ladder scene if it's not to, hey, holy shit, there's something to this kid? Yeah, it it, it is, and so that's that's gonna be one of those things that it's it just I don't think was handled as well as it could have, and I blame a lot of it on the rush storyline, and I'm still not sure why it's rushed. I mean, we could have had an episode or two more and really could have expounded on some of these scenes and, and given better yeah. depths to these characters and, and given better explanations for some things. 
you know, they're trying to wrap up this story and they're creating all of this because all these extra things because George R. R. Martin hasn't finished the books. But even with what they've created, it's like you still had plenty of material you could have written with these extra scenes yeah. and these extra details. I just think I just think that condensing them was a big mistake and, and maybe it's a budgetary thing, maybe it's because they've been signed on for yeah. so long and they're also busy and can't do ten seasons, you know, there's only so much time in their schedule. But if there's only gonna be two seasons left, throw in a, a, a few extra scenes, throw in a couple extra episodes a season. I, I really think they should have, so the rushed season yeah, is you to blame for a lot like of at this. least he would have tried to take Sansa down with him, right? He probably would have started like coming out with like all the things, or possibly Sansa could have elected Littlefinger, you know, to take trial by combat, and then you know you would have seen some sort of battle between he and, and Arya, and that would have been a little bit cooler to see than the you know the Lady Catelyn slicing of the neck. I agree with that. That would have been really cool if there was some kind of a trial by combat scene. I think they should have kept it in there. They would have easily been able to explain away the Tom and banning trial by combat again because the you know uh, Winterfell doesn't recognize right. that king and and all that. That would have been a really neat scene. But Littlefinger not throwing Sansa under the bus. Who would have listened? You've got the Lady of Winterfell. You're in her hometown. You have Baelish, who is this oily, just sneaky guy that no one really has respect for. I just think at that point he was it was self preservation. He was trying to to beg for his life and they wanted to get to the point that he really is a coward. He doesn't do the killing. He has other people do it for him, other people do his bidding. I get what they were trying to do with the scene and I don't think anyone would have listened to him no matter who he tried to throw under the bus. So uh, again, just give it another twenty minutes of screen time, give it another big battle or something, that's the way it goes down. But this is what we got, so it's just yeah. what we have to deal with. So those are all the topics and questions that have been written to us, uh, either Facebook or Twitter. Let's open up the Red Keep Diaries and uh, see how many ravens were delivered. I think it was two that came in this week. Is that correct? Two quite long ones. This comes from Jez. She says, hi, Kevin and Raj. Felicitations on your inaugural episode. You guys basically read my mind on every point. It was amazing. I only wanted to raise one little idea about the hound in the mountain. Is it at all possible that the Hound has always been able to see visions in the fire from a young age? Thoros seemed confident in his abilities and that they quickly jumped on a suicide mission to follow his visions. He was possibly, unknowingly, always a devotee of the Lord of Light. We know that Sandor and Gregor had a sister who died under mysterious circumstances when they were young, and their father also died suspiciously in a hunting accident when the boys were older. It has always been suspected that Gregor was responsible for both of the deaths. Perhaps a young Sandor saw in the flames what his brother had done to his sister, and Gregor responded by helping him get a closer look. I don't think pushing Sandor into the fire was just a normal act of cruelty, because the father covered it up and blamed the accident on bedsheets catching fire. All of that to say that when the Hound told his brother that something is coming for him, maybe it's a death by fire. Relore. Hope to hear lots more from you after Game of Thrones is finally put to bed. Congrats on a job well done. Exo Jez. Yeah, so the the vision that Sandor sees uh, when he's with Barrick and his brother um, Brotherhood uh, Without Banners, uh, he says, a wall of ice, the wall. It's where the wall meets the sea. There's a castle there. Look, There's a mountain. Looks like an arrowhead. The dead are marching past. Thousands of them. Now, a lot of people took that to hypothesize that we were going to get Clegane Bowl or Clegane Bowl. We didn't get that. It truly was just a mountain that looked like an arrowhead. It was also featured when we fe- first see the uh, Children of the Forest. It's it's That's where it is. I don't think it means that he's R'hllor or a, a devotee of R'hllor. R'hllor is also known as the Lord of Light, the Heart of Fire, God of Flame and Shadow. As we know, Lord of Light is a prominent god in Essos, but only has a few followers in Westeros where he's more commonly known as the Red God, and his symbols the fiery heart like Stannis had on his. According to Game of Thrones creator George R. R. Martin, Beric Dondarrion is a fire white, suggesting that he is both the physical and symbolic opposite of the dead raised by the Night King. So, I don't necessarily believe that he's a follower of R'hllor. However... He may be endued certain visions or the power to to vis- uh, see things in the fire because of his near death experience that he had with the flames. If that makes sense, so he's almost like a half white. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they actually go further into this theory that a lot of people are talking about in season eight. Well, you know, you couple this with the emphasis on the fire with the Hound's long-standing fear of the flame. Obviously, that's due to the fact that he was burnt by the mountain as a child. And you, you've got an interesting scenario though, where I think the more likely scenario is that Sandor is going to have to conquer his greatest fear by becoming comfortable with wielding possibly like Barrack's sword, right? I, I think that's something that you might see where Barrack ultimately dies. He can't be revived because this priest died in episode six. Um, so therefore he'll have to take up the, the realm and, and, and kind of be the, the, the priest after Barrack's death. I think that's probably what's going to happen. I think that's going to be the connection. By the end, they kept him alive. They brought him back from the dead, so to speak, because at one point we thought the Hound was a goner. I feel like they're going to have to keep him alive long enough to conquer his fear, and there has to be a scene where he has a showdown with fire. So I'm 100% on board. Our next Raven, part of the Red Keep Diaries, comes in from Tiago. Tiago writes in about the Euron, Cersei, Jamie dynamics. Euron's plotting with Cersei was the last straw that Jamie needed to leave her. She was mean to him because she relishes having more power than him, who was always Tywin's favorite. She didn't kill him because, like Littlefinger with Sansa, she felt some corruption of love for him, just in a very selfish way. This also cracks the theory that she isn't pregnant and was just lying to Jamie to get him to stay with her. Jamie loved her beyond measure. He pushed an innocent child out of a window because of his love, and he's never been with any other woman. And it was the combination of Cersei breaking her vow to help save lives with the plotting behind his back in order to do so that drove him away. Now, I found something odd that is either an indication that she was indeed lying about the pregnancy for any other reason, or it was a failure of writing direction. When Cersei is talking to Tyrion about the white PowerPoint demonstration, she says she didn't think of the world and touches her belly, leading Tyrion to believe that she is pregnant. But in the actual scene... When the white is heading towards her, the moment of real danger, she doesn't touch her belly. She's just grabbing the arms of the chair she's on. Very odd. Maybe a continuity mistake of sorts, but it strikes me as weird. In the meeting scene, I don't think Cersei treated the people as peers. She was playing them the whole time. It's the only way for for the Euron plot to make sense. And it shows her hand in using whatever argument necessary. The Golden Company is from ASOS. Cersei said that Danny is using foreign soldiers, and now she's about to do the same. Also, in that very same scene, it seems that the White manages to get way too close to Cersei before the Mountain does anything. Intriguing that, for example, when Euron is talking to Cersei in the throne room, proposing an alliance, and goes one step in her direction, the Mountain steps in front of him. But when an undead creature lusting for blood sprints towards her, the Mountain is way more still. Kyburn, when presenting him, says he's made a vow of silence and will only speak when all our grace's enemies are dead and evil has been driven from the realm. Maybe the mountain can only protect her from the living. Maybe the army of the dead isn't all that evil. Questions to be mulled over for a year or even further. Your thoughts? Yeah, so that's really interesting. Uh, I did not catch the fact that Cersei did not jump when the white was the white popped out of the box and, and he gets so close to her before the hound pulls back on the chain. I didn't realize or even think about her not grabbing her belly when she was so quick to do that earlier. I think that's a great observation by Tiago. It very well could be editing and directing and not including that or just totally being an oversight and, and we could be overthinking it, but that also could be a very big clue because it's one of those things like when someone lies, you know, we, we see these in, in film and in television. And even if you know someone that, that likes to craft a clever tale, you lie so much and you don't remember what's the truth. And, you know, you can't sometimes remember what you've lied about. But in this case, she has that human reaction to fear for her life. But when she's lying, she, she keeps trying to protect her child. She says it's all about the child. And when when she doesn't have time to think, her gut reaction is to protect herself. And she doesn't grab for the belly. So I, I do wonder if there's something else there. And I, again, just want to say props to Tiago for yeah, even spotting that. Yeah, props to Tiago. He's uh, got a keen eye there. The other thing that's interesting is the fact that the mountain won't protect Cersei against undead creatures well let me stop you there what i want to ask real quick is do you think that there is 
something to that? Or what have we seen recently? We've seen the mountain in there with Tyrion. We've seen the mountain in there with Jamie, which is the more telling circumstance. As in, what is the mountain doing? Like, you know, Cersei basically gives him the signal to take Jamie out, like we talked about last episode. And he doesn't even move and just lets Jamie walk out. So is the mountain losing his touch? Is something else going on there behind the scenes? Or do you think that it actually is some kind of a connection with the mountain versus um, the dead? I think there truly is a connection between the mountain and the dead and, and Kyburn. I do, I do believe it was probably some sort of ambiguous directing that led to the, the head nod of Cersei. I think the head nod is supposed to mean – I think it's supposed to – tell the mountain to let Jamie pass. So Jamie and Tyrion both kind of call the bluff of Cersei. But okay. I have to stop you there though real quick. Sure. And I know this isn't the main discussion, but I think that <laughs> you have to, I mean, suspension of disbelief is one thing and especially for a fantasy show, but you're going to tell me uh-huh. that the mountain who is this zombified sliver of a human being that grunts around and wields his sword swinging here and there whenever Cersei gives him an order. You think that they set up an elaborate scheme that was like, okay, now now listen here. When I nod and give you the signal, when, when Jamie probably says that, okay, you can just go ahead and kill me, and I nod to you, that means go ahead and yeah. don't kill him. Like, I mean, that's it's, so it's far-fetched to think that the mountain it's can ambiguous. comprehend that. Maybe, I don't know, maybe um, maybe she has some sort of Night King control over him, like some sort of telepathic powers. Because you only see the Night King and the other uh, the other White Walkers just kind of nodding to each other, just kind of doing doing this, and then they, they, they occasionally yell. Yeah. And that's about it. You know, he has powers that are similar to Bran's, and so is maybe the Night King controlling more telepathically or through his powers Yeah, where Cersei doesn't have those powers though. You know, I, no, I don't know. No, I think that, I, don't know. I, I think that we're writing the story for them. If we have that's to right. ask this many questions and that's the problem, I think that, and, and you can disagree with me, call me crazy. I think that those were a bunch of uh, head fake deaths. Like we talked about last episode. Oh, oh is Tyrion going to die? Thing. Yeah, yeah, is Jamie going to die? Is you know, it's just I really don't think they were that clever to think that Cersei has this control and the mountain yeah. is this amazing person that can understand her head nod. If I head nod at 35 degrees, that means let him go. If I head nod twice and wink at you with my left eye as opposed to the right eye. No, 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 no. I think I it was I think it was just a head fake um in that scenario. I don't know what's going on with the mountain. Maybe there is a connection, though. I do think, and something I hadn't thought about previously, maybe there is this connection with the mountain being somewhat dead. Maybe he won't turn on his own kind, so to speak. Maybe that is something, and and why Kyburn seemed so to react so strangely when he saw the actual white. Maybe there's a similarity there between the two. And, and, uh, you know, you don't see whites fight each other, and you don't see you know, the dead killing the dead. So yeah, maybe there's something to that. That's right. That's right. This idea that the dead isn't all that evil. It's a little harder of a pill for me to swallow because the whole intention of the fact that the children of the forest raised uh, this army was to defeat mankind. So I do believe that it is truly an instrument of destruction. Yeah, we're going to have to. That's a that's a discussion for a whole other episode on our theories and predictions for season eight and what is actually going on here. You know, as far as what the Night King's end game is here, what is he actually doing, and is he good? Is he bad? Is he Bran? Is he? You know, that's all a right. that's a whole can of worms we can't even open right now. All right. Well, thank you so much for writing in, Tiago and Jez. Let's finish up our Game of Thrones season seven recap with what we call the fan green site of the week. Uh, it truly is where we allow our fans to write a crazy theory, borderline, I guess, fan fiction, right? We talked about, you know, if you have to explain things this far, you were basically writing the whole story. Well, that was done by one of my favorite people in the entire world, uh, Gillian Gemma. You can follow her on Twitter, at Gillian Gemma. She wrote in, the the topic is... Cersei dies by Tyrion and the end of the series. She wrote in bullet points here and what she's predicting for the end of the series. The first one, Danny, John, and company turn up at Winterfell. Danny and John aren't told that that moment they're related because Bran and Sam see it. Oh, it'll fuck shit up and no one wants to die. Your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I can see that. 
I think that uh, Bran and, and Sam are well. Sam is smart enough. Bran is just kind of a emotionless. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, exactly. I well, that's it. I think Bran's first order of business will be to tell John how beautiful his ass was during boat sex. So, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, love those buns. Number two, they gather up the Northern Lords. John tells them they got to start heading north. Jamie shows up. Everyone glares like, "What the fuck, you Lannister shit!" Then he tells them Cersei ain't sending shit, but he's here to prove he's not a complete shit. They say, okay, how do we kill a dead dragon? He and Bronn present the scorpion. John loads dragon spears onto it, and they head north. Sounds good to me. You, so, so far, you're on board with. All right. All right. Number, number three. All the, northers, all the northerners are in, and they all realize that the army already broke through the wall. Sam, Bran and Sam, or Sram, or Bram, anyway, some sort of cute mashup name, pull John aside and reveal his lineage. He doesn't tell Danny, figuring he's going to die against the dead. It doesn't matter now. I think, uh, and I like that Sram, Bram. Sram. <laughs> I think yeah. the team up. You know, I don't know. Maybe maybe John says, I've got a pretty good thing going here, and, uh, you know, we can't change what's already happened. So, you know, I'll just kind of leave that detail out. She doesn't need uh, to know. All right. Gillian goes on to write scene four or, or whatever is happening here at this point. <laughs> Head to the wall. John is riding Drogon. Danny can't be in this battle. She needs to survive. She stays at home in Winterfell, maybe with Tyrion. Everyone sacrifices themselves for John. Jorah dies for him. Bronn dies for Jamie. Jamie pulls a what's his name from Independence Day and sacrifices him <laughs> to kill the Night King so he could be a tr- the true Kingslayer. That leaves like literally one sixteenth of the dead army left for which John and Tormund kill the rest off. They do. He returns. Jorah doesn't. Jamie doesn't. Bronn doesn't. Who knows about Tormund? All right. So, so what she's saying is that John leads an entire army along with other bannermen of the North and they wipe out the entire army with a uh, Kyburn scorpion. Uh, armed, I assume, with Dragonglass. Wow, you know, I, I do clearly think that John is going to lead an army against the Night King. I'm totally on board with that. As far as who dies, I don't know that Jamie's going to die at the end of this. I can see, I can see Bronn dying because yeah. I, I feel like Bronn has been pretty loyal and he's generally motivated by money. But I do think beneath the scene or behind the scenes and. At the bottom of it, I do feel there's a friendship there. I do feel that he does have some kind of respect and loyalty to Jamie. And I could see him taking a bullet, so to speak, for Jamie, and I could see him dying. I think that is very believable. So, yeah, I, I feel like Jamie's going to make it out. And, uh, you know, he may have something to do with killing the Night King. But in the end, I, I really feel like that's going to be John's place. I feel like Jamie's going to make it out. But I feel like John is going to be the one that that ends up killing the Night King with Longclaw. You know, I, I I really feel like that's destiny. All right, number five, Theon's captaining the Ironborn, sneaks up on Euron. This is before Euron gets the Golden Company. Theon gets Yara. They take over Euron's fleet. Ninety nine percent sure Theon dies, sacrificing himself for Yara. Yara takes the fleet back to Westeros to serve her queen Danny, thereby now uniting the Ironborn and the Seven Kingdoms for good good. Completely on board with Theon dying. That's the redemption arc. He has to die. We're, we said it before. We're not going to go back and forth with Theon being a hero and being Reek again. This is his final redemption. He's going to die. I do believe that uh, he either dies taking out Euron or takes out Euron first and then dies. Or maybe he just jumps in front of Yara and saves her life and she kills Euron. But either way, something like that happens. I really like that idea. I like this idea, but why not go to Dorne and pick up the Dornish army? Because there's only six episodes. Okay, got it. <laughs> Point number six. Well, now on to the real battle for King's Landing. Cersei has lost the baby. Probably when Jamie dies. Think ultimate twin telepathy. He dies by a gut wound of some kind of... That is so dramatic. Cersei feels her twin's pain causing her to lose the baby, but uh, she doesn't die. Now she's really fucking crazy, like Mad King through and through. She has all the cachets still have wildfire underneath the city. She plans to use as her last defense in the standoff against Danny and John. Civil war breaks out. Maybe the gold cloaks uh, do show up. That gold cloaks are the golden army. Uh, they do show up, uh, or Euron got them, and their boats sailed off safely. But there's a battle, a battle of the bastard style battle where legit everyone re- remaining dies. John goes down fighting hard, but dies, never having to tell Danny his true lineage. 
Finally, they breach King's Landings. Varys knows where all the wildfire is stashed since he was the Mad King's Whisperer, so he thwarts Cersei's last attempt. Danny shows up giving some amazing speech, a la Independence Day, so passionate because she just lost John. Cersei goes for Danny. Tyrion is there. He kills Cersei. Maybe Arya watches, but that'd be too much. What do you think there? <laughs> that is a lot going on. Yeah, uh, a, lot, a lot happened there. There is. I, I really like the idea of the the super twin telepathy and and, yeah. and dying <laughs> by right. a, a, a puncture to the gut and that killing the baby or something. Sure. That is so fantastic, Gillian. Like just entertaining, if nothing else. I really right. love. I've never thought of anything like that. I don't think she's really pregnant, so I don't know if I can go along with that. But uh, and, and I think Jamie's going to live. I'm not quite sure about that yet, but I do like the idea of very somehow using his knowledge of, of the wildfire or something like that. Yeah. Do you think, Raj, just real quick, do you think that John is going to die or Danny is going to die? Or do one you think the, that these two could the make two, it out? One of the two you think? will die. One of the two will die. They have to. One of the two. I, I would have thought that before this season, because think about leading up to season seven how many people have died that we've grown attached to. We've come to know this show as one that doesn't pull punches. Everybody dies. No one's safe. But, uh, you know, people came out pretty unscathed this season. Right. I don't know if they did that just to keep them alive to kill them in, in eight, you know? I don't know. I We'll have to see if the show gets back to its roots, but I'm not sure they have the guts to kill off Danny or John at this point. Well, the final point that Gillian makes here is Danny sits on the Iron Throne. She is happy yet heartbroken. She has the rule and the love of the people. Masandi comes beside her, and just like how Danny found out she was Preggers the first time, Miss Sandy happens to remind her she hasn't gotten her period in a while and reveals Danny's preggers. We end with an almost all-woman kingdom and some very young ladies. Example, my girl Leanna of Bear Island. Uh, Danny has a boy, brown eyes, brown hair. She breaks the wheel and calls him John. End fucking show. Uh, this is how... <laughs> Listen, if we have spoiled any of season eight, don't blame us. Blame Gillian. As crazy as this sounds, this is probably the most, probably the closest thing that I could see to happening, actually, is John dies, but Danny's pregnant with his kid. That's that's the one thing I could see happening. I do think Danny's going to sit on the throne. My my gut tells me that it's going to be Danny and John together on the throne. I, I do think there's going to be more of a happy ending. And I do also think that Danny is going to be able to get, be pregnant. So I think that she's right on track here. I really do agree with a lot of this. But yeah, I just don't know that John's going to die. I just don't know. He's already died before and he's come back. Uh, I think that killing him off would be too hard at this point. And again, I just don't know that they have the guts to do it. Thank you, Gillian, for, for writing in and trying to spoil Game of Thrones for us uh, Season 8. Uh, we really appreciate it. But that was our, our green site of the week. With that being said, that's it. We appreciate you listening. Thanks for writing in. Kevin, what do we want to do before we wrap up things? Anything we want to tell the audience before we stop and get ready for, for what's upcoming here at Show Spoilers? Again, I just want to thank everyone uh, from myself and from Raj. Thank you so much for taking this new show that we started very late in the season of season seven, but uh, for, for coming on board with us and continuing the conversation, because like you, we have a year and a half to wait for the next season and we want to keep talking about this show. It's not like, you know, Sunday nights, all of a sudden we just have other things to do and we forget that Game of Thrones existed. We love the show. We love the history. We love the whole deal. You know, we're talking about the books and the fan theories and everything to do with, with this show. So thank you for coming on board. And uh, we just want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast. So when we have a new episode and especially when we talk about new shows, you're the first to hear it. So subscribe on iTunes. You can subscribe on any device that you can play podcasts on. If you don't have iTunes, you can go to Acast. You can type in the RSS feed we gave earlier, but it should be under show spoilers. And uh, please subscribe, tell your friends about it. And and if you if you like what we're doing here, that's the biggest compliment that we can get is to tell someone about it and to talk about it. And, and hopefully those people will join the discussions, too. And uh, the two places that are the best way to reach us are on Twitter at all the spoilers. That's at all the spoilers. And on our email address, the show spoilers at gmail.com. If you have any corrections, which, you know, this is a long episode. We talked about a lot of stuff. I'm sure we screwed some stuff up. 
send us any corrections you may have or anything that we missed. We may have missed some pivotal plot point of season seven that did not make our top list. And if we forgot something, tell us, call us out. We'll correct it. We'll we'll talk about it. And uh, if you have any more green side theories like Gillian did, those are so entertaining. We love to hear from you. So thank you, everyone, for all of your emails and tweets and interaction. It really makes us worth doing. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Roger underscore Roper. And uh, how can they follow you, Kevin? You can follow me on Twitter at Kevin R. Brackett, Brackett with two T's. And also follow Real Spoilers on Twitter at Real Spoilers. And uh, another place that's great for conversation, if you enjoy talking with other fans of shows and movies, go ahead and Facebook on the Real Spoilers page. You can join the League of Show Sharers. And that is where people, it started off with people just sharing each episode of Real Spoilers, but it morphed into this uh, amazing community of people that are talking about movies, television, Game of Thrones, Mr. Robot, you name it. People love to talk about everything that's going on in the world of pop culture. So if you want to talk with people like yourselves that love the things that you do, the League of Show Shares is the place to be. Very cool. Thanks. Uh, on behalf of Kevin Brackett and myself, Roger Roper, we appreciate you listening. Take care. Thank you so much. And have a great night. 